I've shared before a little about the history of our denomination, the Evangelical Covenant Church. One of the major points or turning points in that denomination was a discussion with a man named P.P. Waldenstrom. There was a discussion about the nature of the death of Jesus, but in this discussion, or really a debate with him, he asked a question to those who were questioning him. And the question he asked them was, where is it written? And the where is it written became a catchphrase for the denomination in the late 1800s as they were the Swedish. So the Evangelical Covenant Church comes out of the Swedish Lutheran Church, and as they were breaking away from the Swedish Lutheran Church, this phrase, where is it written, became a phrase that kind of marked out, set the culture for who they were. And so as they met together and as they discussed things, they would ask this question, where is it written? And sometimes we hear that phrase and it's tempting to hear that phrase saying, where is it written? Meaning, what's the Bible verse? Take me to the address, figure out what that thing is. But when the early covenanters talked about this, they meant much more than that. They meant, look at what does the Bible as a whole say about this? What is God's words? So where is it written? What does God say to us? And, but that's how we often approach things, I think. That same kind of mindset is we read the Bible in a certain way. We go and we try and find that one verse, that little passage that speaks to whatever issue we have a question on. We have a question on an issue. We say, well, what does the Bible say about X? What does the Bible say about abortion? Or what does the Bible say about divorce? What does the Bible say about money? And then we maybe go to Bible Gateway or we pull out a concordance and we look up all the verses with those words in it and we go and we look at those verses. But there's a different way to read the Bible. And so what we're doing in the series we're currently in called the Bible Reading Reset and the, again, the language and a lot of the terminology I use here comes from the Institute for Bible Reading. And they're the ones who produce the Immerse Bible experience. And so we're looking at how we read our Bibles and the difference that that makes. And so in the first two sermons of this series, we kind of looked at why we read our Bibles. Well, we read our Bibles because God is the source of life. And the Bible is one of the ways, one of the primary ways that we connect with who God is, that we hear from Him. Even in that song that the worship team just led us in, and the song we'll be singing over the next few years, it says, speak, O Lord. As we read our Bibles, we're waiting for God to speak to us. The second part of the series was last week, we looked at the big story of the Bible, and in some sense, you heard it read again in the passage that Susan just read, that the Bible has a storyline. There's a theme, and it traces back. Paul in the synagogue goes all the way back to the ancestor, to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob, and then traces through the people of Israel to the time of Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, the one who fulfills and brings God's purposes to conclusion. And so there's this storyline that connects all these many, many different books. We have 66 different books in our Bible, written over a thousand years of time by 40-plus different authors, and so there's all this information, but there's a line that runs through it, and it's Jesus Messiah. But for this week and the next two weeks, we're going to talk a little bit more about how to read our Bibles. Because our Bible, in some sense, is different from book, other books, but in this, some sense, it's much like other books. And so we're going to be offering, or I'm going to be offering you some tips, some thoughts on how to read our Bible. Not all, not all there is to say about how to read our Bible. There's entire courses and books and stuff written on how to read our Bible, but a few key things. So one of the things as we go into this week and the next few weeks is 
These sermons may feel a little bit more like a Sunday school class than a sermon, but what we're looking at is one of the key things we long to do as a church is make disciples. That was Jesus' command. Go and make disciples. And what's a disciple? It's an apprentice. It's someone who's learning to be like Jesus. And so part of our role as followers of Jesus is to learn. And one of the things, in order to learn, we often have to be trained. We have to be taught. And one of the things, one of the ways we need to be taught sometimes is reading our Bible. We do this in many different contexts. We have small groups. We have Bible studies. We have our home studies. We have a resource that our church provides for you called Right Now Media, where you can watch videos and you can learn from all kinds of amazing teachers. But one way we learn is as a congregation. And so over the next three weeks, and then actually the eight following, we're going to be looking at how do we read our Bible and how do we rethink the way that we read our Bible? So going back to the origins of the ECC, the Evangelical Covenant Church, I want us to think about reading our Bibles as more than going for that clobber verse. You know, we, we come, we have a conversation with someone, and we're having a discussion with someone, and then we look and we find that verse, and we think, oh, I've got the verse that'll knock this person out, that'll just destroy that argument. We'll find this, what we call a proof test text. But we want to be asking, what does God tell us through the Bible as a whole Bible? Not just the parts of it, but reading it as a big story. And so today's sermon is called Read Big. And by read big, I don't mean be expressive like, I need to read big. But read long stories of it. It's a practice of how we read. So we're actually going to, we're going to use a little bit of the story that Susan read, but I want you to also turn, if you have a Bible, to another story in the book of Nehemiah. Um, it's on, in your few Bibles on page 347. I was going to have Susan, read this, but she'll see why, she'll be thankful why I didn't ask her to read this particular passage as we go to it. So this is the end of chapter 7, the beginning of chapter 8. So yeah, page 347, chapter 8 in the book of Nehemiah. And so Nehemiah has written the time of exile. The people of God have come out of exile. They've been captured by the Assyrians and Babylonians. They've returned home. They found the city of Jerusalem and the walls are destroyed around. Them. And Nehemiah is working to rebuild the walls of the temple the walls of the city. And there's struggles and there's opposition going on. And finally, they come together for this time of renewal. And this is what it says. Uh, last verse of chapter 7, beginning of chapter 8. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Ezra, the teacher of the law, stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. Beside him on his right stood Matatiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah. And on his left were Padiah, Mishael, Malkijah, Hashem, Hashpadana, Zechariah, and Meshulam. Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing before them, and he opened it. The people all stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And the Levites, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, 
Hadiah, Messiah, Kaleida, Azariah, Jazabad, Hanan, and Paliah, instructed the Lord, instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that people, under, people understood what was being read. So you're welcome, Susan. I could have asked you to read that. <laughs> now, I, little bit, okay, this is, a, this is a bonus tip for today. If you're ever asked to read scripture and there's a bunch of names you don't know or don't recognize and they're big, long things, here's the pro tip. Just read them like you know what you're doing. Because I may have mispronounced some of those, but do any of you know that? No. But if you stop and stumble over and people kind of wonder, but if you just read through like you know what you're doing, people are like, wow, they don't really know what they're doing. And it's just a name. If you get it wrong, it's okay. So that's the pro tip for the day. Everything. But this story here, there's a couple key verses here. One is Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 1. And all the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So the book of the law of Moses is the first five books of the Bible. What the Hebrews or what the Jews call the Torah, the, the law is not really good, the commandment, the teaching, the instruction what we sometimes refer to as the Pentateuch. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So he brings out these books, and they would have been on these large scrolls. And then this is the other one, verse 3. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon. That's a long time, isn't it? I mean, we read 20, 30 verses, and some of you are probably thinking, wow, that's a really long reading. Imagine reading from daybreak. So four or five hours, maybe. Him reading from the book of the law. And he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the people. And so here's this reading, and it goes on. And sure, Ezra and Nehemiah could have gotten up, and they could have just given them some inspirational verses, right? They could have gone and found some particular things. But there was something going on as they read these long passages, the long stories as they went back and told and started at the beginning and, and told the story of creation and the fall of people and then the flood and then the call of Abraham and the story of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and his son Joseph. And then moving into the Exodus and hearing these stories and all these things came together. And you notice how the people respond. They respond, amen, amen. And later on they weep as they realize, but they've heard this story because as they're hearing this story over the course of the day, there's themes, there's patterns they're noticing. Little things, little repetitions that are going on. And this is what reading big means reading extended sections at one time. Something that's been become popular in the last few years with the advent of streaming services on television is something called binge-watching. Maybe you're familiar with the idea of binge-watching. Binge-watching is the idea where you sit down, and rather than just watching one episode of a television show, you watch three or four or maybe seven. Or maybe you sit down in a weekend and watch an entire series in one weekend. We have this conversation with our younger kids, and we talk about how this works. Like, when we were little, it didn't work that way. You know, TV shows came out once a week, and if you missed the show, most of the time, you were just out of luck, weren't you? You know, maybe you had to ask your friends what happened, and, and then later days, maybe somebody had a VCR, and they happened to record it if they could figure out how to program it right, and somebody didn't tape over it. You could watch the show, but you would never have thought, we would have never have thought of saying, sitting down and watching the entire season of something in a weekend. But there's something that happens, and I've never done an entire weekend, but maybe I've, I've, there's some series and shows I've watched, and maybe over the course of a week or two, 
And there's something powerful as you go from episode to episode and there's all the connections going on and you remember things because when you watch something over the course of a season, if it's a 20-week season, and it comes to week 18 and you're trying to remember, well, what happened back in week two? But instead, when you're reading it all through and going and hearing these things in all the same way. So as opposed to binge watching, imagine the exact opposite of that. Now, this illustration won't work as well for those of you who are under 30, but kind of follow along with me. Commercials in television, right? You're watching along and you you watch maybe, what, seven, eight minutes of a show and then there's a commercial break. Now, imagine watching a television show and you start the show and you get to the commercial break and you say, oh, that was kind of nice. You turn the TV off. And then if you had the power to, maybe you come back the next day and you pick up where the commercial break was and you watch the next, until the next commercial break. And then you turn it off. And you come back the next day and it may take you four or five days to finish a 30-minute episode or a story. And in some sense, that's how we often read our Bible. We come along and we read and we say, oh, there's a break and I stop. Even if it's in the middle of the story. Well, why do we read like that? Well, partly because we've been trained that way. We've been told how to read. We have Bible reading plans and they tell us, well, read a chapter. Read two chapters a day. If you want to read the Bible in a year, read three chapters. And the other is that's how our Bible is put together. So at the end of each one of your pews, there are a couple books. And so if you want, just grab it. It doesn't matter what book it is. If you have some extra books, maybe grab a pew in front of you or you can share with somebody next to you. And what I want you to do is just grab one of these books doesn't matter, just open to the pages and just kind of flip through it. See what it looks like. And then I want you to grab the Pew Bible or your own Bible that's in front of you and kind of open that up just to some pages and flip through it and look and compare the difference between those two books. Do they look the same in any way? I mean, Somewhat. I mean, in some way, there's words on the page. It's in English, right? Yeah, yeah, Bible, yeah, depending on the book you have. Some of them are real little, some are bigger. But the Bible has all these extra things that the other book doesn't have. There's chapters, there's verses, there's maybe cross-references. If you have your own Bible, our pew Bibles don't have as much, but if you have your own Bible, there might be study notes at the bottom, and there's, cro- there's a, maybe a third column in the middle with all sorts of extra verses in it, little things on the side. The thing is, the earliest Bible didn't have those things. When the Bible was written initially, it would have been actually most of the scrolls in Hebrew and the Old Testament, and the Greek New Testament, it would have been written in all the letters. They put all the letters right next to one another. There were no spaces between words. And it wasn't because they didn't know where the spaces went. It was because scrolls were expensive. And so if you take out all those little spaces you could put a lot more words on a single page. They did have paragraphs, sometimes little breaks in the thoughts of ideas, but it was all kind of this continuous story. So if you picked up and read the Gospel of John, you just went from the beginning to the end. So where did chapters come in? Well, it didn't come from God, but in the year about 1200, so 1200 years, first 1200 years of the church, there were no chapter breaks. And there was an English scholar who wanted to put together some commentaries on the Bible, who wanted to write some information to help people. 
And so he wanted to be able to say, in this part of the Bible. And it's a lot easier to say, oh, in John chapter 14, than it is to say, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Because then you say, well, I don't know where that is, and you have to flip through the whole book. But if I say John 14, for anyone who's grown up in church, like, oh, you can kind of find that address. So that was around the year 1200. Around the year 1500, a French scholar decided he wanted to write what's called a concordance. And a concordance is a collection, it's a thing that tells you where every single word is found. So if you wanted to find out about the word gate or the word sheep, and you wanted to find out where every time that particular word is used or the word justification, where that shows up or the word idol shows up in the Bible, you go to a concordance and it writes, cites all those things. But this French scholar was looking, he was saying, well, but if I just give you the chapter, that's not really good. That's like just telling somebody what town they live in. But what if I could give you their street address? And so he says, how about verse numbers? And so he's riding in his carriage on this several-day trip, and along the way, he's just putting all the verses in, putting verse numbers in. And pretty much we're stuck with those chapters and verses from 1200 to 1500. And then as the printing press, so this is around the time the printing press is invented, and they begin to print the Bible, and they realize that printing is expensive, and the Bible is a really thick book. So one of the best ways to make more words fit on a page, and this doesn't make, seems kind of counterintuitive to me, is to put two columns of text on a page. In fact, I heard a story several years ago about someone who was wanting to produce an inexpensive Bible so they could get the Bible out to as many people as they possibly could. So what they did was they tried to figure out, how can I produce a Bible for $1? And so they worked hard on it, and one of the ways was they just used super cheap paper and stuff, but they made it a six-column page to try and fit as many words as possible. Now, try and imagine, I mean, it's hard to read like a two or three column, six columns in this thing. It well, it didn't work out so great. But so all these things get introduced. And why does this matter? Why does it matter that we added chapters and verses and column breaks and all these things? Because our technology in a Bible or book is technology shapes us. So a couple examples of that, as illustrations of how it works. The clock, we kind of take it for granted. Most of us have, we have a clock on our phone or we wear a watch. We have multiple clocks around our house, some which are still flashing from when daylight savings time. We'll just wait till <laughs> the fall and they're on the right time. But our life revolves around clocks. If you work, you've got a certain time you're supposed to be at work, a time you're done with work. Schedules work, businesses close. What did they do before clocks? They just had kind of a natural rhythm of things, right? Well, the sun's coming up, it's time to get up. Sun's going down, time to go to bed. There was this cycle, a different way. And so then clocks came and it, it created this precision and we became obsessed with saving and managing time. And it's not to say that keeping time is a bad thing, but think about the ways that clocks shape and form us. Or I was having a discussion a couple weeks ago with someone I was talking about cars. All of us have a car, right? We don't think about, well, we just use our car to get from place to place. But think about the, how the creation, the invention of the car shaped and molded even the society we live in. And so the discussion came up in the context of church attendance. Now, I want you to imagine going back to, say, 1850. And you're thinking about your family. You said, we're going to go to church. 
How would you decide which church to go to in the 1850s? Look, probably the closest one, right? You're not going to go church shopping because getting in a carriage to ride 25 miles to the other side of town because they have a great kids program is not how it works. You simply create a community. So cars reshape the way we think about life. Cars enable things. Cars do a great thing. It's great because I can get in a car and I can go. My mom lives a little over 100 miles away. I can get in the car and visit her in two hours. And that's a wonderful thing. But that technology has also shaped the way we think about things and the way so our community is no longer, our church is no longer shaped specifically by geography or proximity, but it's shaped by all kinds of things and many other ways that cars have shaped us. So those are just two examples. Clocks and cars are the ways technology shape us. But in the same way, the technology of the Bible, of chapters and verses, causes no longer see letters, but little bits. So this quote from Alex Goodwin, he said, how does it impact our experience when we're forced to navigate a text littered with speed bumps and stop signs? How does it ex- impact our experience when we're forced to navigate a text littered with speed bumps and stop signs? And so what he means is you come along and if you're reading a normal book, if you have a novel, most of us, we want to finish a chapter, right? We get to the end of a chapter because it feels like, well, a Bible chapter, kind of, we have that tendency the same way. Well, I've read a chapter and I get to the end. The problem is the chapters don't even make sense sometimes. And it didn't take long for the man making the chapter breaks in the Bible, and they broke the chapters primarily so they were about of equal length. So if we were to go to page one of the Bible, which is what happens on page one of the Bible, the story of creation, right? So if you were to read to the end of chapter one, and so creation is this seven-day account. Well, chapter one ends on day six. And then chapter two picks up and says, thus the heavens and earth were all completed. And by the seventh day, God had finished his work. So if you just read one chapter, you didn't even get to the end of creation. And then there's this other kind of creation story, a different way of telling the creation story that starts in chapter two, which if you're reading the Bible, it's kind of this weird speed bump, right? A stop sign. Because if you just read a chapter a day, you're like, oh, six days, all done. Oh, wait, there's a seventh day. Because you hadn't read to the end of the chapter. There's other ones that happen in some odd breaks because of technology. So if you have your Bible there, the Pew Bible in front of you, turn to page 334, uh, which is the end of the book of Second Chronicles. And so some of the breaks also became because of older technology. So I mentioned that the old Bibles used to be written on scrolls. And scrolls, you could only fit so much on them because of the, the technology of the scrolls. And so at the end of the book of Second Chronicles, so again, page 334 in your pew Bible, if we go to the last part of Second Chronicles in chapter 36, beginning at verse 22, it says, in the first year of King Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it in writing. Okay, sounds good enough. Now, Go to the book of Ezra, which follows right after that. Chapter 1, verse 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of King Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it in writing. Sound familiar? 
And actually, I didn't read the last part of Second Chronicles, but it, there's a whole what he says there, and it also shows up in the book of Ezra. So was Ezra plagiarizing from the writer of the book of Second Chronicles? Being unoriginal? No, actually, these two books went together before. But the scroll system and the system caused them to be separated. And so to help early readers figure it out, they ended the book of Second Chronicles and said, well, let's just start, first Chroni- first start Ezra where Second Chronicles finished so we know the books are supposed to go together. It's kind of like saying previously on. <laughs> and you get the repeat of it. And it makes the connection or just kind of showing the last scene of the previous show so you can read right into it. So this technology causes us to stop and to realize Second Chronicles and Ezra are meant to be read together. But we've broken them down and created separate books in them. And we get along and we say, oh, here's these things. And so the technology, the formatting of our Bible causes us to miss connections and stories. And then we talk chapters and verses. The other thing that shows up in our modern Bibles that aren't a part of our original Bibles is chapter or these little... Um, section descriptions. I call them spoiler headings, right? So if you read along and you say, look, it says, oh, Saul takes his own life. You're like, well, I know what happens in that paragraph, don't I? (laughs) Jesus raised from the dead. Oh, I mean, there's all the, you're going along and it tells you what the story is about to do. Kind of takes the fun out of a story. Imagine reading a novel, a mystery book, and you're sitting there and and like you're reading partway through the last chapter. And then there's a little section heading. Detective figures out it was the butler. What? You're like, wait a minute. But that's how our Bibles are written. And so we're not, we don't enter into the story. We just see these little pot, parts and blocks all made up. And we have spoiler heading, all these things that are going on in there. The problem with all these different bits and pieces of things as we think, chapters and verses, it causes us to think we've mastered the Bible. We've got the chapter and we've got the verse down. We want it quick and easy. And I'm not saying chapters and verses are all bad because it does help a lot, doesn't it? It helps a lot for us to be able to reference things and to remember things. So as we're having a conversation or maybe you're listening to a teaching or you're reading a book that's talking about the Bible and it says, oh, in this part in Jesus, when Jesus says, and then it gives you the passage, it says in John chapter 5, verse 4, it's a whole lot easier than just quoting the verse. And you think, I don't know where that comes from. So you can go and you can look at it yourself. But it also affects how we read. Because it can reduce the Bible to a bunch of memory verses. It can reduce the Bible to isolated stories with a good lesson. I mean, another formatting thing. I remember my first Bible. I've got in my office one of the first Bibles I had, an old King James Bible. In some of the older King James Bibles, every single verse is a separate paragraph. And then if the verse breaks in the middle of the thing, there's a separate line. And so every, it's just hard to read. Never mind King James English, but just reading, it's not a natural way. It's not how we learn to read. And so I like this quote from Philip Yancey as he talks about the way we've broken our Bible down into chunks and pieces. He says this, the modern church has created an entire culture around Bible McNuggets and assumed they were nutritious. The modern church has created an entire culture around Bible nuggets and assumed they were nutritious. In other words, we assume if we, just, if we have our verse of the day, if we read our two or three verses, if we maybe read our chapter, that'll be enough for us. So what do we do with that? 
go back to my title for the sermon, we read big. We begin to, as we read our Bible, read big, long, extended sections. I think that's what Paul did. That's how Paul was able to tell that story of the entire narrative from Abraham down through Jesus. Because he knew this story, he got immersed, he got waded into it, he was baptized into these stories and he heard it. And one of the ways we can do it is by taking out the chapters and verses. So when we're doing Immerse Messiah, one of the things you'll discover is it's formatted differently. It's a single column and the chapters and verses are all gone. So you can begin to read it like it was written. When Paul wrote a letter to the Romans or wrote a letter to the Philippians or, or James wrote a letter, he didn't put chapters and verses in there. He wrote a letter to them and expected that when the letter arrived in Rome, that Phoebe or whoever read the letter and narrated to the people would stand up and read it from beginning to end. She didn't get up and say, well, here's the first three verses. Okay, go home, think about that for a while and come back next week. Because when we read the whole story, we begin to see those things. We begin to see how they're connected. That the word and realize the words are inspired, but the chapters and verses aren't. Like the people in Nehemiah who heard this story, they began to hear these things, and they began to hear themes and ideas repeated, and they began to be reminded of all of those different things on. And so we can begin by reading large segments, begin by even maybe reading a whole book of the Bible in one sitting. You think, a whole book? About 40 books of the Bible can be read in under an hour. Not 40, all 40. Say that, make sure... You can't read 40 books of the Bible in an hour, but 40 books of the Bible, each one of them, any one of them could be read in under an hour. So hope that makes sense. I don't know. I'm confusing myself. So like, for example, the book of Philippians, you pick it up, it's a couple of, you could read that in under an hour. You could read the entire book of Romans. Now, like Isaiah, that will, that will take you a bit longer, but you can read it on and you can begin to move intentionally and avoid those exit ramps and those speed bumps of chapters and verses and stuff. Now, this is hard for us because many of us have been trained, we've been taught to try and analyze each and every verse and each and every word and think about it. And so it requires some retraining. It requires some rethinking to begin to say, I don't have to worry about application. I don't have to worry about what every verse is, but begin to say, what is God saying? What is God doing? To begin to see the story as a whole, and you can maybe later go back and do that study. But you do the study, the intense study, in the context of this large story. Because when you read big, you begin to notice those patterns and the way, and we'll talk some about that in coming weeks, the ways that the authors put little things in there to help you connect stories, connect ideas, they recurring phrases and words. And as we're reading them, we think, well, why did they said that already? But it's to draw our mind into it and to connect them. And the other thing, we, one of the things we have to do when we begin to read big is to set aside our agenda. Some of us, when we read our Bibles, we come to it with an agenda. And by agenda, I mean we, 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 we're looking for an answer to a question. We want to know what the Bible says about a particular moral issue, maybe a particular political issue, maybe a particular life issue. And so we go and we search and we want that word or that phrase that's going to give us the answer and we want to make our list of verses that answers that. But what instead if we see the Bible as God's word that has something to say to us? And rather than going to find what we want to find, we go and we see what God has to say. 
So we go and we just read a Bible and we say, what is Jeremiah saying? What is God saying through Jeremiah? As I'm reading Nehemiah, what is God saying in the midst of that story? How does this story fit into the big thing? Rather than trying to get Scripture to answer the question it may not be designed to answer. And this is something whenever I've done confirmation or a class with younger students, I said, we have lots of questions we want answered. The Bible isn't necessarily written to answer our questions. The Bible is given to us by God to tell us what He wants us to know. And so what we're invited to do is to enter into the story of the Bible and trust the author knows what they're doing. And we can do that often by going in and just listening to the story and saying, Paul wrote a letter. Matthew wrote a gospel. Moses wrote this story. And to say, they wanted us to read this letter. Paul didn't intend for the people in Rome to just say, well, let's see what chapter 6 has. And just get stuck on that. They said, I want you to hear this letter because in the letter he makes a long argument. And you may not be able to follow every contour and, and shape of the argument. Even in some of the shorter letters, there's a lot going on. But you can maybe see, like, oh, this all fits together and he wants me to get this one idea out of it. But we've turned it into McNuggets. We've turned it into little morsels. We've stuck them on mouse pads and, and bumper stickers and say, here's what it says. And instead of looking and saying, what's this big story that's going on? Again, I'm not saying that Study has no value. There is time to take a couple verses. There's time to take a chapter, maybe even a word or two, and sit and spend some time with it. But we need to read that story or read that verse in the context of this biggest, bigger thing, of having the fluency, the backdrop of that big story. Paul knew that story, and it shaped him. He had read the Scriptures, and as he was talking there, Susan was reading, maybe you caught some of those phrases as he was saying, it says, yet in condemning, they fulfilled the words of the prophet that are read every Sabbath. So they found no proper ground. And then it says, uh, when they carried out all that was written about him. Well, how did they know what was written about him? And these words of every Sabbath, because it's part of this larger story. Because Paul and the people then would read these long, extended segments, and they would hear this story, and it just began to soak into them. And reading our Bibles is much like reading a book. And some of you who are book readers, you probably have a favorite book you've read two, three, four, six, or seven times, maybe. And you go back to that book, and maybe you see something different the next time you go back. I mean, you like the book, and you go back, and you see something again. And maybe you catch something you didn't catch the first time, and a connection that, oh, near the end of the story, when this happens, that's just like what happened back in chapter 1. But I didn't notice that the first time I read. But if we read our Bible in little chunks and bits and pieces and McNuggets, we don't see those things. But as we begin to read an entire story, we begin to say, oh, wait, that's like this other thing that happened back there. We become acquainted with the story and it becomes much like our own story. And we see how the people in the book of Nehemiah were changed by this story. So what I'm inviting us, Fruitland Covenant, to do is to read big. To read this story that God has given to us because it's God's Word. It's His holy Word given to us to shape us, to transform us, to change us. 
What I'm invited to do is consider for a short while to try a different way, to try a different way of eating, to try a different way of taking in God's Word so that we can be changed and transformed. Because what I want us to see as we go through the immerse experience is that God has given us a feast. And so we need to stop snacking. But enjoy instead feast on the Word of God. Amen.